Wow, what a great morning. We're live here at The Story. That's the Story Worship Band, and they are bringing it this morning. I hope you felt it wherever you are. Hey, we're just really glad that you're here for this 29th consecutive Sunday of online-only worship. Nathan and Haley and the band are here, and they're just, they're, they're bringing it. Hope you all are worshiping at home or wherever today finds you. And, and I'm grateful for this technology that has allowed us to remain connected through this extended season of being only online. And my name is Eric, by the way, I'm a lead pastor here at The Story. I've got some pretty exciting news to share, especially for those of you who are a little bit tired of online-only worship, and it's just not doing it for you. So check this out. Today, uh, barring some weird COVID emergency or resurgence, today is our last Sunday of online-only worship. Our online ministry will continue, we'll continue pushing to get it better, but next Sunday, we're starting to reopen in-person worship um, here at The Story. One service only, a smaller service, um, you know, for social distancing reasons. Y'all, if you've been here, you know our room is not very big to begin with, and so we're having to space it out, and and, uh, we're gonna take all the protocols to keep people safe that we can. You're gonna need to pre-register. There are no walk-ups, no walk-ins. You can't buy your tickets at the door or anything like that. You're gonna have to pre-register. And I think the space is already filling up for October. So next Sunday is October 4th, it's, it's week one. So y'all go ahead and hop online, thestory.church slash RSVP, thestory.church slash RSVP, if you'd like to reserve your spot for you and or your family. Uh, to join us for one of the Sundays in October. If we see that 11 o'clock service starting to fill up consistently, we'll open up another one of our services as well to make sure that there's space for as many people as possible. But hey, I'm just excited. We're gonna have real live people here um, to worship with and preach to. So uh, that's been, uh, it's been missed for sure. We are in the final part of the series now. This is part six of a series we've been doing called In the Image of God. Um, uh, standing up for every human life. And the, the purpose of this series is to really unpack the uh, biblical principle that all people are created in the image of God. To do that, we've talked about some very controversial subjects, uh, abortion, um, uh, racism, immigration, and refugees last week. And, and as I look back on this series, I just want to make sure I'm clear that, that we're not just you know, stirring the pot. We're doing something more important than just stirring the pot. We're, we're digging into this biblical principle that all people are created in the image of God, and we're using these controversial subjects as test subjects, right? So we're trying to test this theory when we look at um, these controversial issues. So as a side note, I feel like I've done a great job of planning this series by talking about all the controversial stuff when there's been nobody here to throw stuff at me. <laughs> so that's worked out for me. Um, uh, So I'm patting myself on the back uh, for that. But I think most of y'all know where we're coming from here. This isn't about um, being divisive. It's not about feeding into the culture wars. In fact, it's about doing the opposite of that. I'll share more about what I mean in a moment. Today, we're going to talk about gender. And once again, uh, we're not here to stir the pot. What we're asking about gender is what do masculinity and femininity have to say about us being created in the image of God, all right? So when we look at the Bible's foundational principle that all human beings are made in God's image, what does it have to say about gender? So let's look one more time at Genesis 1, 
Verse 27, this passage we've come back to six weeks now in a row. It says in Genesis 1, 27, that so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. I know what people have heard about the Bible. I know what people say about scripture and about Christianity, that it's all oppressive, that it's all misogynistic, that it's all anti-woman. I want to offer a, a counter argument to that and suggest that if the Bible and the writing of scripture were in fact some kind of patriarchal conspiracy to keep women in their place, this phrase that I just read, male and female, God created them, would never have seen the light of day. It would never have made the cut because this is such a radical statement. Today, it's a radical statement. The idea that God created male and female in God's own image with equal worth and equal dignity. But in the Bronze Age, when the Bible was written, when Genesis was written, this was nothing short of transcendent. No one said stuff like this about men and women being equal in any way whatsoever. And so the fact that this is in, in scripture at all, I think is evidence of a counter argument to the common trope that Christianity and the Bible are somehow misogynistic or sexist by nature, all right? So the, the fact that the Bible has been used by sexists as a tool to oppress women doesn't mean the Bible is sexist. It simply means that some people are tools. That is all that that means. And so we shouldn't buy into the lie that because some messengers holding Bibles get it wrong, that the Bible is wrong. That's the fallacy called uh, the argument ad hominem that cancels out the source material because the one presenting it is morally flawed. And obviously we don't wanna go down that path. So the Bible's most foundational statement and first statement on gender is that God made male and female, men and women in God's image of equal worth and that there is something unique about maleness that reflects the image of God. And there's something unique about femaleness that reflects the image of God. And so to deny that, to deny the reality or the sacredness of masculinity or femininity is to somehow deny the God who made us in Genesis. So I know that some people have only heard sort of narr negative narratives from Christians about gender. And some of you are expecting this sermon to turn into something that it's not. You've heard abusive people in the past say that, you know, men should be one way and women should be another. And that's the way it is. And we should raise our boys to be macho and our girls to be cutesy. And I want to make it clear that's not what I'm doing here. Don't project that past stuff onto me. I'm sorry that happened. I'm not here to talk about boys that like to play with dolls and girls that like to play football. In fact, if you're raising a son who likes to play with dolls, I order you right now to drop to your knees and get on your knees and pick up a doll and play with your son. And if you're raising a daughter who likes to play football instead of with dolls, like click on my face right now, try to pause me in a complimentary moment like normal, not like, like some people do sometimes. Be generous with your click. Click on my face, pause me, go outside and teach that kid how to throw the tightest spiral you know how. 
That is not at all what I'm here to address. Um, I'm here to talk about what I perceive and many have perceived to be a cultural overcorrection against the uh, archaic gender stereotypes that were misused, that were misapplied, that were enforced or imposed on people. And I do think that was wrong in many ways. But I think that right now we're in a moment where culture is overreacting and overcorrecting, and we have been we have been coerced to think that the only proper reaction against gender stereotypes is to throw gender out altogether or to make it into something less uh, than it really is. And so I don't want us to pretend that God doesn't make us male and female anymore. I don't want us to pretend that gender is not a thing or that there's no reason or purpose behind it. And this isn't just because of what the Bible says. Now for me, the Bible saying it would be enough. I confess that I'm, I'm a sellout when it comes to scripture, all right? So some of y'all are not there with scripture. And I would even raise your attention to what a lot of biologists and sexologists are saying about the science behind sex and gender right now. And the ones who are not, you know, just utterly terrified of being canceled by the mob in the court of public opinion are starting to raise the warning flags about what this overreaction against gender is doing to us, especially to women and girls, who many people are saying are the real victims of that overreaction. So consider the words of a, a neuroscientist named Deborah So. Dr. Deborah So wrote a book called The End of Gender, which just came out actually, and I actually recommend it. I don't often recommend secular books, but um, she wrote this. She said, the idea that human beings are blank slates upon which gender roles are inscribed. So she's talking about gender as a social construct and nothing more. Just, you know, kids, girls like dolls because we only give them dolls and boys like trucks because we only, like that kind of thing is what she's pushing back against. She says, it has since become universally accepted, a badge of honor reflecting that a person subscribes to the right kind of thought. But it is women who will pay the price for this misinformation because it makes combating discrimination more difficult when it does rear its ugly head. If gender is thought to be learned, masculinity will remain the gold standard and femininity will be reduced to aberrations of it. Women will continue to be pressured by society to rid themselves of stereotypically female traits instead of challenging why being a feminine woman is worthy of ridicule. So in that spirit, I'll just put my cards on the table and say I too want to push back against the most recent cultural conversation or the norms that are now being imposed on our children, frankly, in public schools. My daughter is going through this right now in seventh grade where she's being given materials that are imposing this new orthodoxy on our kids that suggests there really is no such thing as uh, fixed uh, gender and that we shouldn't even be talking about it that way. I believe sex from a biblical and biological standpoint, sex is binary. I believe gender is binary. I know it's going to get me in trouble in some ways, but I believe this to be the case, and that for over 99% of human beings, uh, that is the case. There is no question or ambiguity there. And I know you've heard about intersex people who uh, are maybe physically uh, um, in their genitalia, maybe there's some ambiguity there, but even intersex people have the genetic coding that is either male or female, um, you know, on, in their gametes, their, their uh, reproductive cells, it's there, it's still there, all right? So 
I think it's important that we don't just throw out this notion altogether. Sex is indeed binary, but here's, here's the important thing for Christians, but <laughs> we live in a broken world full of broken people, and we follow a Savior who told stories about 99 sheep who had no issues, and one sheep that did, and the shepherd who chased the one, leaving the 99 to chase the one until he found the one. And so this is who we're called to be. And so it's not enough, it's not sufficient for us as Christians to just dismiss the cultural conversation about gender dysphoria, about gender identity or gender fluidity, just because we think it's icky or weird, or we don't understand it, that's insufficient. We are people of Jesus called to follow in his footsteps. And so we need to try and dig in there, even if we're uncomfortable to figure out what that looks like in 2020. So to that end, I called on a friend. Uh, some of y'all know him. He is Dr. David Bennett. Um, I said doctor. He's soon to be doctor. He's working on his PhD now uh, at the University of Oxford. His PhD work is on um, gender and the Bible. And David joined me on Monday uh, in a Zoom conversation. We talked for like an hour. I'm only going to give you seven minutes of our conversation. But if you don't know David, I encourage you to listen to his story on a Maybe God podcast uh, episode that we did last year. That'll be listed in the comments on whatever platform you're watching from. David is a same-sex attracted man. He's a gay man who's chosen to live celibate because of his devotion to Jesus. And that is a choice he's made. And, and I respect it. I think, I think David's love of Jesus exceeds my own. <laughs> so he, is, uh, he, is, uh, uh, he has a testimony to share. But David is doing all of this work on sex and gender and the cultural conversation going on. And he joined me to help clarify some of the confusion around these topics. And so here's seven minutes of David Bennett and I talking about sex and gender in 2020. I think maybe it would be helpful at this point uh, for you to help us uh, understand the differences between words like yes. sex, gender, sexuality, and, and all of that. Could you, could you walk us through sure. a primer? Yes. So I think what's really important to understand is a person's gender identity or how they feel that they actually are within themselves can be different than their actual bodily sex. And this is called gender dysphoria. Um, and people with this experience will often identify as transgender. And then there are people who are intersex. And what intersex means is that their body has a morphic ambiguity to it so that their genitalia or part of their body might not look exactly like the average male or average female. But what's interesting about being intersex is that you are still male and female technically. And there is a small group in which that is actually ambiguous and difficult to tell whether they're actually male and female. But generally, there's still the patterning in creation that got established physio physiologically as male and female. And so there's a category in the Bible for people that don't easily fit in the male and female reality, which was the eunuch. And I know we've talked about this before. And actually, God has an amazing promise in the Old Testament to eunuchs. And he says that he'll give them an amazing name that's better than, you know, the average kind of embodiment of male and female. So I, I just see that God, even though there's effects of the fall on creation and like our bodies aren't exactly how they were created to be, there's this promise in, cre in Jesus that God will actually take us into this new resurrected body where living in obedience to him in this current body will matter somehow. And I think that's the thing I like to focus on is that there's this hope 
that if your embodiment is different, that doesn't actually disqualify you from knowing and loving God. And actually, God has a better name for you. I think that's pretty radical. <laughs> like, I think that actually is good news for people, LGBTQI people, who don't fit easily into what is called cisgender. Cisgender is that you don't feel any dysphoria between your gender and your body, and you don't have an attraction to the same sex, and you don't have any physiological ambiguity in that experience. So that's how I would explain those catch terms. But one thing I just want to talk about that just quickly off the back is the term ezer. So in the Bible, it describes Eve as a helper, and the word is ezer in Hebrew. And that word actually is used of God about 50 times in the Old Testament. Yeah. And towards the people of Israel, and it means someone who comes alongside to win a battle. So the idea is that male and female and all the rest of humanity, without each other, we can't win this battle. <laughs> we can't be this image that we're all part of the image of God. Um, and I think that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is something I and most Christians in my world are, are comfortable with as long as we're talking and uh, couching this in biblical terms and searching the scriptures for this stuff. It's all there and I'm, I'm good with that. I think where a lot of the, I, I think, more heated discussion happens among my Christian friends is in relation to the culture wars that you mentioned earlier and how to engage with a culture that, that feels like, it may not be reality, but it feels like it's going off the rails in terms of um, gender, gender identity, gender expression, um, and you know where we're getting to this place where they're, they're really, gender is really just always moving. There's a, you know, uh, who knows how many genders there are uh, in <laughs> reality and the whole pronouns <laughs> thing. And like, how should yeah. we as Christians live in a world that seems to be just uh, going, a snowball running down the hill? So I think the great thing about Christianity is that we're always going to go through new challenges and new things are going to come up. And yet those new things relate to things that have always been there. People have always experienced a diversity of embodiments and gender identities and difficulties with sex and gender. And I think sometimes to just allow the Holy Spirit, and as long as you're anchored in scripture and the Holy Spirit, to actually go and be with those people and hear them out. And there's going to be ways that they're not living according to the will of God and they're being conformed to this world. And there's going to be ways in which we actually have things to learn. And I just, I think I've come to a place where I'm not afraid anymore of engaging and I'm not afraid of the culture having a different view and I'm not afraid to listen and say, oh, I actually need to learn something. The late theologian J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians recently, I was with a friend at Oxford and she's an expert in evolution and faith and that conversation and I don't agree with her on everything, <laughs> but she was with J.I. Packer in Regent College in Canada and they were sitting together and he was talking about the Bible and what it said and evolution and some of the doubts he had. And she made a really good argument about evolution and why she thinks it's compatible with scripture. And he said, actually, I've never heard that before and that's better than anything I know. And you're actually better at this and I'm gonna really think about that. Thank you so much, that's really valuable to me. I just like what humility he showed in listening to her, this young scholar who is a scientist and studying evolution and faith, and actually deferring to her. And he's this like 65 year old expert that like has, you know, reformed the church. And just to say, well, actually, I don't know about that and you're the expert. I think sometimes we just need to have that humility to listen and test what others are saying. And that's why I think education is so important. I think 
growing your knowledge and trying your best and then just letting God do the rest. And not all of us are called to be experts in science and how it fits with faith. Not all of us are called to be experts in gender and sexuality, but just to have that, that posture of humility, I think really helps in these conversations. And that's something I'm trying to learn every day um, as I talk about sexuality and try to be as humble as I can whilst holding to the truth. And I actually think that actually deepens your anchor in the truth, doesn't threaten it. I used to think it would. If I was humble and I actually learned from others who knew other things and were in other spaces that it might undermine my faith. But again, it's this conviction that God is waiting at the other end of truth. And yeah. at the beginning point, I might freak out that, oh my gosh, there are people who are intersex. Does that mean there's no such thing as male and female? Well, no. <laughs> you know, or these kinds of superficial fear responses we have to overcome. Um, and that God says, you know, perfect love casts out fear and that we can be confident in the truth. Uh, and scripture hasn't revealed everything to us. It's script, scripture has revealed what is authoritative for life, faith, and practice. So we still have a lot to learn outside of scripture to inform our faith as well as scripture being the authority over it. So that's how I process these questions. And I hope that that is helpful for, your, for people listening. And it's such a pleasure and honor to be able to partner with Story um, all right, I want to thank David Bennett um, for being such a friend of the story. If you want to hear more from David, I encourage you to pick up his book. It's called A War of Loves, A War of Loves by David Bennett. You can pick that up anywhere that books are sold. It's a great book. And obviously, the Maybe God episode as well is another way to hear more from David. David and I spoke for uh, about an hour, and you just heard seven minutes of that conversation. But most of our conversation was really uh, focused on Jesus and how Jesus dealt with that one lost sheep, or how Jesus dealt with controversial issues in his time. And what's fascinating about Jesus is that he always presents a better way than what is apparent in the moment. So uh, the culture in Jesus's day was a lot like our culture now. It, it was polarized. And whenever there was an issue that was presented, a hot-button divisive issue, it was either this or that. I don't know if you've noticed, but we do the same thing. Our questions about controversial subjects are often so binary and so polarized. It's like they're designed to tear us apart. You know, are you pro-life or do you support the murder of babies? Are you uh, okay with saying Black Lives Matter on Twitter and however else I tell you to say it and wherever else I tell you to say it, or are you a racist? Do you support trans ideology or are you transphobic? Like those are the only choices. And with Jesus, there's always a better way. There's always a, a, a more transcendent way of looking at it. So we've got one answer here, one answer here, and Jesus's way is just so much higher and better. And we see this again and again in his ministry. You remember the, the familiar story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. I don't know how these religious leaders caught her in the act of adultery, unless she was being adulterous with one of them. I don't know. I don't know how else that happens, but they bring her, drag her in, interrupting a sermon that Jesus was giving, and they throw her at his feet, and they say, you know what the Bible says, teacher, and they've got stones in their hands. They say, the Bible says we should stone a woman like this to death. So what do you say? Should we kill her right now? 
or do you hate the Bible? <laughs> That's kind of uh, uh, my interpretation of what they're asking. It's just this or that. And of course, Jesus has nothing of it. Like he refuses to cave to their uh, this or that polarizing questions, their narrow-minded questions. And he says, yeah, whichever one of you has never sinned, go ahead and throw that first stone. And then the story says that the oldest men dropped their stones first because they had the most sins, I presume. And then the middle-aged men and then the younger men all followed suit. Jesus changed the game on them. Jesus encouraged them, challenged them to think deeper than the initial questions that were before them. And so he did this all the time whenever presented with two choices. Like this other time, it literally says in the story in Matthew 22 that the Pharisees wanted to trick Jesus, which seems like just poorly conceived idea from the start. So they, in secret, go behind closed doors and they come up with a question that's a trap. And so they come to him like all ready to get him, like uh, scheming. And Matthew records the story in Matthew 22. It says uh, that they approached him. First, they gave him all kinds of pleasant compliments. You're such a great teacher, blah, blah, blah. And then they said, what is your opinion then? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not to? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him and went away. They wanted to trap Jesus because if Jesus said, well, pay your taxes, he would have sounded like one of them. He would have sounded like a sellout to Rome. But if he said, don't pay your taxes, they could have had him arrested on the spot. But he doesn't answer the question in either polarity, in either way, right or left or whatever. Jesus instead said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, referring to a coin which had Caesar's image on it. And he tells us to give to God what is God's, referring to yourself, which has God's image on it. It's an a brilliant response to this tricky trap question is a reminder that male and female, God created each of us in his image, every human life, in spite of what you may have heard. Masculinity and femininity are both wonderful things that reflect the true image of God. Masculinity is wonderful. It is awesome. It is God-ordained, and men need to know this because a few years ago, the American Psychology Association concluded that masculinity marked by stoicism, competitiveness, and aggression is essentially a mental illness to be handled with care and to be treated as an illness. And this is a lie straight from the devil's mouth. Men do not need to hear one more word about how who we are as men, is toxic. We need to break the trend of the only qualifier that we ever hear with masculinity is toxic. Toxic masculinity is all our boys ever hear about masculinity. We need to celebrate the ways in which masculinity reflects the image of God. We need to be, you know, um, initiating boys and men 
into healthy communities where other men can mentor us. I mean, men that get masculinity wrong don't get it wrong because masculinity is bad. They get it wrong because they've never been initiated into masculinity by other men who live uh, their masculinity as God intends. You know, there's something beautiful about masculinity that must be celebrated. Most men come pre-wired, hard-wired by God with this willingness, even a desire on some level to put our lives at risk for the sake of the greater good, for the sake of women and children, for the sake of other men around us, for the sake of our country even. And that's a wonderful gift. It's a gift from God. And if all we ever do is disparage or diminish masculinity, we are forsaking the gift. We are being entitled little brats that don't understand the price that's been paid so that we could have the right to say the things that we say today. I mean, that instinct within men, it's, it's what drives men to run into fiery buildings, to run toward the emergency instead of away from it. It's one of the main reasons why 98% of the veterans in America who have given their life, paying the ultimate price for our freedom that we enjoy over the years, the ones who've given themselves away in battle, 98% of them have been men. It's one of the main reasons why 96% or 97% of all Firefighters in America today are men, and 88% of all police officers in America today are men. It's one of the reasons why men tend to work the most dangerous jobs in America that keep our country going, the things we take for granted, like roofing and sanitation and policing and firefighting for that matter. And it's one of the reasons why 93% of all workplace deaths are men while 7% are women. And really the only reason I bring that last statistic up is to point out the reality, and maybe we can reckon with this today, that if those numbers were reversed, and in America in 2020, 93% of workplace deaths were women, there would be protests in the streets and hearings on Capitol Hill to find out why women are dying disproportionately to men on the job but there's something about masculine stoicism, the masculine ability to compartmentalize and put your head down and get the job done without complaining that keeps that statistic out of the headlines and out of Capitol Hill. I think that's to be celebrated. There's something wonderful and good about masculinity. It's not toxic. Humanity is. <laughs> Sin is. Not masculinity. Now, femininity is, uh, has come under fire in recent years as well. Maybe you've noticed a lot of women grieve the fact that, uh, I guess, what you call traditional femininity has been under fire for a generation or more. And many people have come to blame the Bible or blame the church for, you know, keeping women down and making sure women stay in their place, all pink and pretty and petite. Listen, that's not the Bible. Like, that reality, that kind of sexism has been a universal human experience, whether or not Christianity was a part of the culture. The common denominator there is humanity. It's not the Bible, okay? So, uh, in fact, when we look at the Bible, when we look at Jesus in particular, in the world that he stepped into, and the way that he lived in that world, what you find is this radical edge to Jesus 
the Greco-Roman world in which Jesus walked was highly sexist. It was built on the foundations of the worst kinds of misogyny. Aristotle, for example, one of the thought leaders of the Greco-Roman ethos. I mean, he's, he studied in colleges uh, the world over. Aristotle said this about men and women. He said, but the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules, the one and the other is ruled. And then there's the first century Roman scholar, Cicero, who said all women, because of their lack of judgment, should be under the power of male guardians. And these were the men who shaped the Greco-Roman world that Jesus stepped into. And this is the world Jesus stepped into and, and empowered the women around him. No one treated women like Jesus did. No one treated them like human beings, surrounded himself with them uh, and, and was willing to take the heat for being surrounded by women, some of whom had bad reputations in society. Jesus didn't care. Jesus heard their questions. Jesus knew their names. He was different. He calls us to be different too. Listen to what the female Christian theologian, Dorothy Sayers wrote about Jesus's interactions with women. Y'all, I love this quote. She wrote, Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without quarrellessness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. This is our Jesus. Jesus reveals the kind of humanity God intended. We find in him the best of humankind because in Jesus we find love giving itself away. God creates us male and female to give ourselves away. This is where I find the most meaning in this conversation about gender or the particular ways in which men and women can give ourselves away. And it looks different for every one of us. We don't have to live up to old gender stereotypes or norms. It looks different. Some men give themselves away by running into burning buildings or running into battle. Some men give themselves away by using their power to liberate others or to empower others or to protect others. Some men give themselves away by teaching their daughters to throw a tight spiral or teaching their sons to play with dolls on a Sunday afternoon. And on the other hand, when we look at femininity, 100% of human beings who have given their bodies away, sacrificed their bodies, and in some cases, their career goals through pregnancy and childbirth. 100% of those humans were female. And of course, that's not the only way that God makes women and empowers them to give themselves away in love. It's just one of the most unique ways, and it is beautiful. It should be celebrated. Now, other women might give themselves away by seeking out the lost sheep, every room they go into, by sharing empathy, a listening ear, a crying shoulder everywhere that they go. Some women give themselves away by choosing to love a man-child until he becomes the man God created him to be. Amen, Giovanna? 
Some, some women give themselves away, if we're going to complete the circle and be completely honest, some women give themselves away by running into fiery buildings beside brave men. We're running into battle for the sake of our freedom. That's part of the story too. The beautiful thing about following Jesus is that you don't have to live up to anyone else's standard. You don't have to fulfill anyone else's gender roles. It's not about how good a man you can be or how good a woman you can be according to anyone's expectations. Your worth is implicit. It is inherent. And it is solely based on the fact that God made you in his image. God made us, male and female, in God's own image. And when you build your life on that principle, instead of the shaky ground of this world, you build a life that honors God, that blesses the people God puts in front of you, a life that will be a blessing to you as well. I know that some of you have had experiences in your life that have taught you that men are the problem, that men are the bane of your existence. And I'm sorry for what he did to you. I'm sorry for what they did to you but I hope you can find the strength and wisdom to parse out what they did and what real masculinity is. What they did was sin. And men are not the problem. Some of you feel the same way about women. We talk about this less, but it's true. Some of you feel like women are the bane of your existence. Women are the problem. Femininity is the problem. And no, I'm sorry for what happened to you. Parse it out. There's sin and then there's true femininity. Masculinity and femininity both uniquely reflect the image of God. And so in response to the ways we've gotten it wrong in the past, may we not just throw out what God intended for creation. May we not just throw out gender altogether. Instead, may we be liberated from those, those ancient stereotypes to live out this new reality, to celebrate masculinity and femininity, to celebrate what it means to be men and women, boys and girls made in the image of our good and perfect God. I've really enjoyed this series as, as uh, difficult as it's been at times. And I thank you for your conversation with me by, by way of uh, online or by way of email. I encourage you to keep the conversation going in your small groups. Reach out to me if you have questions. And as we seek to continue living the way that God created us to live, may we follow Jesus instead of the ways of this world. Would you pray with me? Lord, uh, thank you for leading us through this discussion today and through this series. Uh, Lord, our world is, is confused and, uh, and broken. We don't have all the answers and keep us humble, God, when we think that we do. Help us to be your hands and feet, your listening ears, your open hearts to those who are most in need. Help us to be like Jesus, the good shepherd who seeks out the lost. Lord, help us to not be afraid. Help us to speak truth, to speak it with love. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.